0: The human is born out of the need for stress. When we have no stress, we have no incentive to performance. You grow by doing something you can't quite do. And in that moment, that stress exceeds your ability to cope and you grow as a result. Meditation is a pill, to drive my body out of a state of stimulus into a state of calm. No one has ever lived in the world we live in today. The biggest single factor in creating a a culture of inability to switch off would be something like 24-hour news.
1: If every guest could change three things to make their lives less stressful, what would they be? Today's episode is going to change your life. I'm genuinely serious about that. I have spoken to Ollie Patrick today, who is a world-leading physiologist, and we spoke so much about just small, actionable things that you can change to bring your physiology and your well-being and your stress levels from good to great, and I learned so much in such a short period of time. So keep listening, it's a really good one. Ollie Patrick is a world leading physiologist, co-founder of the world's most advanced health evaluation service on Harley Street and founder of the world's first lifestyle medicine gym. Prior to his current roles, he was head of physiology at Nuffield Hospitals, where he co-founded and led the largest team of applied physiologists, wellbeing advisors and nutritionists in the UK. In Ollie's words, we as a society are in the midst of a stress epidemic. And his mission is to teach the skills required to build stress resilience and dramatically improve the standards of well-being delivery within the corporate and hospitality marketplace. Dedicating his time and efforts to the pursuit of better lifestyle and well-being advice at all levels of access. And today we're going to talk about actionable small things you can do to go from good to great in terms of your physiology and especially how to stress less and live a more maintainable stress-free life. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited for this, particularly because I want to reduce my own stress. Crucial. This is entirely selfish, this episode. This isn't for anyone else. This is just me. How can I get like top-tier Harley Street advice for free? Yeah, is this <laughs> sorry. for free? Yeah, yeah. yeah so his rate is very high. If you're having him on your podcast, you must pay a lot. Um, Yeah, so this is just entirely selfish and I just want to know everything about how I can reduce stress in my life and just be a more in touch, less stressed person.
0: I think that's fair. That's fair. And the pressure's on me to be the most de-stressed person ever in this conversation. I
1: can imagine. I'll ask later whether you ever get stressed being in stress management. I I think that's probably a particularly interesting point. But for the people who haven't seen your work, can you give us three bullet point intro into your career from when you started, biggest things you've done, what you're kind of most proud of, whistle-stop tour.
0: Whistle-stop tour, I shall whiz through. I, I'm a physiologist, again, a not particularly well-known profession, um, but I was involved in health screening. And bullet point one would be trying to help health screening move from looking for disease to evaluating functionality. Yeah. So let's not spend all my time checking whether you've got cardiovascular disease and whether you've got, you're about to have a heart attack or whether you might have a cancer. There's validity to that. But let me try and understand how you're dealing with stress, how you're dealing with sleep, how you're dealing with nutrition. So my role originally was in health screening, helping that move towards being more of a health assessment. So after doing health assessments and then really working to scale assessments to a national, if you like, profession. So I helped develop the the health and well-being physiologist profession in the UK. um, I then started um, with some colleagues, the world's most advanced health assessment. first thing was scaling up a a good product but then with anything you scale you get more and more interested in who's doing the worst Mm -hmm. you know how do i quality control the baseline and we'd seen huge developments in technology like dna mapping have become much more cost effective you can measure now through functional medicine laboratories pretty much anything you want to measure i can measure hormones you can measure the brain waves your 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 brain's putting through you can measure your digestive function the gut microbiome you can measure hormones you can measure sleep cycles so all this tech was arising but there wasn't really a product to embed it into something that was usable. Right. Um, so with some colleagues I set up on Harley Street to deliver the world's most advanced health assessment and evaluation service, which is a bit of a mouthful. And that product was really to say, how would you look after an individual if resources weren't finite? And the, re- the main resource being...
1: It's so interesting because this obviously is a hugely important and hugely interesting part of kind of us being able to understand ourselves and yet it obviously then creates even more of a schism between people who are able to afford something like that and people who in the UK thankfully can rely on the NHS to be able to fix their issues. If we look at say like an American healthcare service, that is based off the idea that you can't get either of those things for free yes. which is horrendous yes. in my opinion yes. and so are uh, having to pay for both of those things in the UK if we're able to be provided with fixes which is fantastic and yeah. as we should be but certain members and sections of society are able to essentially like unlock an even more kind of you know more advanced view that actually ends up Increasing life expectancy, increasing their quality of life all of these things. How do you kind of feel about that in terms of the I mean, I know you've moved away from the health assessments and in kind of that way at the moment But I can imagine that poses quite a strong moral question in terms of this is incredibly interesting and we're advancing things But actually why does X person get to know that they have cancer way before another person does because they're in a completely different financial
0: position? I think it it raises an enormously pertinent question. It's a difficult one because ethically you know, when you're anyone involved in healthcare, you want sort of a democratised solution. Absolutely. It, I think interestingly with that particular business, you know, it's it's probably the first time all those different variables have been put together in one pot. And you're asking the question, what can I learn from this that can be democratised? Yeah. And I know that business, which still runs, is is very keen on how it becomes a learning hub about which tests are useful, which ones yeah. aren't.
1: People pay for things, we'll run them, and then we can hopefully learn from this and apply this to the greater right.
0: Because, you know, you don't have... You know, Clearly, within screening, it's a really difficult socioeconomic argument because with screening, you'll get false positives. So Mm -hmm. we we look at mammograms, which are available through the the state system. They'll be contentious because some people will get a result where it says they have a problem and they don't. And you create anxiety with that Mm -hmm. and you create additional cost in terms of chasing down the rabbit hole. So the question with every test is about whether it's effective as in terms of too many false positives, also too many false negatives. It tells you you don't have breast cancer when you actually might. So... Screening itself is contentious, let alone at the, at the very top, top level. I think screening is something that, that again, ethically, the people who be able to do that are, are not going to affect you know, sort of the, the baseline care. You almost say people who are excluding themselves from the healthcare system are then decreasing a cost that might be shared by others. You right. can make an argument both sides yeah. for it. But I think the real question is what you can learn when you don't put boundaries around healthcare. Yeah. And ideally, you'd say, actually, we've realised that the three most important tests out of 10,000 you can run are these three, and then how might that... Yeah, then, and
1: therefore, how can we how give can more access that
0: to that? And, uh, also, and I'm just saying, screening is one part of a health assessment. Mm-hmm. So it's it's probably the most contentious part, saying, is there something wrong with an individual? Yes or no. But there's also quite good screening available through the NHS. Oh, absolutely. But that product you know, would really find its value in, in prevention. And prevention isn't finding a disease before it kills you. It's finding a body that's becoming dysfunctional before it classifies as disease. yeah, And then equally driving into the physiology of how someone works and saying, can I make you feel better? Yeah, And all those things that are really trying to stop the individual becoming unwell and then driving into a healthcare system where we're all sharing the same cost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredibly interesting. And also I'm really interested in whether you think that we see stress management and these kind of lifestyle management terms as quite wishy-washy, yes. whereas actually... As you've said, they're almost based entirely on the science of it.
0: Totally, I, I think, well, I, I, I came out of that that business very happily, and it's still it's still doing brilliantly. But I think that for me, what was so interesting is the impact. So Let's imagine I'm I'm doing that assessment on you, and we've got let's say ten thousand results, everything from blood, saliva, urine, stool—always fun—and yeah, um, brainwave always analytics, fun. you know, DNA, <laughs> everything. And then I improve your body's ability to move and I improve your body's ability to nourish I improve your body's ability to recover and let's put stress into that recovery piece then you'll see an improvement in almost every one of those results you've measured okay. so what you've got to be careful of with with healthcare is you don't get too fixated on looking at the leaves of the branches and not the root of the tree and for me you know lifestyle has, has often been a little bit wishy-washy and I think lifestyle well-being these aren't brilliantly well-defined terms and they sit almost in the the sort of The aesthetic industry, you know, well-being, the biggest contributor to global well-being is skin creams. Mm -hmm. But if I think of of well-being as as the sum of actions that impact on my physiology, if I improve how your physiology works, I will see an improvement in every parameter that we can collect and measure. Including your skin. Including your skin. Yeah. Including your skin. And and the body isn't such a reductionist approach that I can change one thing and your skin suddenly blossoms. Yeah. Because your skin will be a function of how your gut works. Your skin Mm -hmm. will be a function of whether you're nourished, whether you sleep, whether you move whether you're exposed to tons of environmental pollution, mm-hmm. whether you wear SPF 30 to protect yourself from the sun's rays. So we, we try to reduce outcomes to one single thing in equals the outcome I'm dreaming of. Mm-hmm. And that works well for a product marketplace. So someone can sell me a cream that will solve all my problems, yeah. but that's not how physiology works. Right. So I think I, I got really interested in saying, well actually, if, we, if we're measuring the, the ripples of lifestyle, why not go and try and make people better at curating lifestyle? And within that, stress is a major piece. And in fact, mm-hmm. stress when I first started, you know, in, in health screening was a sort of conversation that was almost separate to the health screen. You know, the screen was saying, you know, Grace, have you got heart attack, you know, mm-hmm. happening? Have you got cancer? You know, have you got some organ dysfunction? And it would be proven, no, they don't. And then they'd go, oh, but I don't sleep well. And I've got this sort of tight chest and it's always oh, not a heart attack. So it's yeah. fine. And the, and the manifestations of stress, everything from, you know, from tight chest, poor sleep up to poor digestion, you know, difficulties with skin, and we're seeing stress manifesting in almost, you know, every health problem people will cite. And the contribution of stress to ill health is rising with sort of every journal and study that comes out. So that was really interesting to me for an issue that's perceived as psychological. Mm-hmm. So you know, most people think of stress as, you know, a pressure of the mind, yeah. You know, and, and the definition of stress is when the, the pressures incumbent upon us exceed our ability to cope. That's a sort of simplified version. So people always think of that as being a a mental issue. And the biggest professionals in the stress space would probably be psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, people who try to change either the way we think or the way we view the world. Mm. What I found really interesting right back from from the 1930s, just before I was born, um, is that there was an endocrinologist who stressed rats and he found that they got stomach ulcers. He stressed them by sort of electrocuting them and doing all sorts of mean things. The usual stress The usual sort of stress. But he created a stress... And in those rats, he found ulcers, their thyroid gland wasted away. Mm-hmm. And they had an enlargement of a gland called the adrenal gland, which makes yeah. cortisol and adrenaline. And, and that was really interesting because the stress he was giving them had nothing to do with those organs. And at that mm-hmm. moment, stress went from being a psychological issue to a physiological issue. I.e., if my, 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 my body, my emotions, my mental state is overwhelmed, it will turn up in my physiology. And a lot of people, when they're excessively stressed, are given something like a beta blocker, which is a medication that yeah. stops adrenaline acting on your system. Or they're given a muscle relaxant that takes away the physical manifestation, and that changes their ability to deal with stress. And I was absolutely fascinated by that, and the idea that if you block the messenger of stress, you change the way we view the world and you change how functional we are. And my interest as a physiologist has been, how does a thought turn into physiology that turns into dysfunction And how do we intervene with that more effectively?
1: That's so interesting. And when you're meeting a patient, for example, for the first time, how do you evaluate their stress levels and kind of how they're able to deal with stress?
0: It's a, it's a great question. There's no single test mm-hmm. for stress and, and your biggest-
1: Are you doing it on me right I, now? I, I am. I started when <laughs> and I got Am it. I stressed? You're, you're
0: doing magnificent. But, but yeah, the it's idea- surprising. I think yeah, the first thing with stress is stress is enormously positive. Mm-hmm. So a human is born out of the need for stress. You know, we, we start with the idea that, that stress is when, you know, the pressures upon us exceed our ability to cope. That's not technically the definition of stress. That's the definition of distress. Right. When we have no stress, we have no incentive to performance. If we think of exercise, that's a stress on your body. Your body goes, oh, that was something I couldn't quite do. I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll increase my capacity. So the same thing in two days time hurts me less. Right. So same with growth, you know, you know with setting up a business, you grow by doing something you can't quite do. Right? And in that moment, that stress exceeds your ability to cope and you grow as a result. So we have to be careful when we talk about stress that that the word itself is not negative, it's extremely positive. But if we face a prolonged exposure to pressures that exceed our ability to cope, we move into distress and that's when the body starts to to fall apart a little. So the first and most important thing is always the story of the individual. Mm -hmm. There's no data that's that's gonna override what you're telling me about the way you feel and that way you feel will be everything from mood state to digestive health to bowel habits to all these other bits. So we can do a sort of subjective quantification What's really interesting for me is the main mechanisms of why people seem to get unwell from stress seem to be through two biological systems. There's a nervous system that runs the inside of you, mm-hmm. as much as people don't like to think about this. So I've got my motor nervous system that controls you know, whether I, whether I'm moving, dancing, etc. Not often. And I've got my autonomic nervous system that basically runs the inside of my body. Right. And that nervous system's got two key arms. One that speeds up your physiology and one that slows everything down. And you've probably heard the phrase, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So you've got a nervous system that prepares your body for fight or flight, but it's not a binary state. You don't suddenly go from zero to being able to jump out the window to escape an attacker. But you've got a nervous system that speeds up your physiology and you've got a nervous system that slows it down. And in many cases, the human being is a bit of a battery. Mm -hmm. We have a nervous system that expends energy, the one that speeds everything up, and we have a nervous system that slows it down. It's called the sympathetic to speed up, parasympathetic slow down. From the 1970s, we knew if we measured something called heart rate variability, we could quantify whether a person was being predominantly run by the speed up system or the slow down system. So I'm going to put this in layman's terms. We can sort of measure whether an individual over 24 hour cycles is spending too long prepared for stress or too little time prepared for rest and digest. And that measurement became really interesting. In fact, <clears throat> that measurement sits behind technology like Whoop, mm-hmm. which I wear. People who wear a Garmin watch will have an algorithm that tells them when they can train again. Apple Watch has a component of it, or a ring. And we've seen this technology move into the mainstream without people quite understanding exactly how it works. But heart rate variability gives me an analytical measure of whether your body is spending too long prepared for stress. That is a gross oversimplification that will get me pillared online. But you know, principally, that is, is what we're looking at. When I first started measuring executives, probably you know, right in the early 2000s, I thought by measuring heart rate variability, I'd find them super stressed because mm-hmm. they were telling me they had symptoms of, st- of, of distress. You know, they weren't sleeping well, they had poor immune system, their sex drive was down. Those are the things that they're reporting. So that sounds like chronic stress. What's interesting when you measure heart rate variability is we found often they weren't in a state of perpetual fight or flight, but they had inadequate rest and digest. Okay. So if I was going to simplify that again, I'd say the, the sort of modern executive is not excessively stressed. They are inadequately recovered. It's the same thing.
1: So is that things like when we relate that back to something like hustle culture, for example, when we're essentially encouraging this kind of like all work, no sleep, this is the way you succeed, all of that. I can imagine that then stress isn't the fact that the things in those days are too much; it's the fact that you haven't had enough space between those days and those hours working to be able to cope.
0: Totally, yeah. And, and really, you'd say how many people are excessively stressed? And you know, most people, you know, if we look at a real stress situation, what's going on in Ukraine, or you know, a real yeah. life or death famine, war. Actually, you know, in many cases, you know, people who've just given birth to, to children. You yeah. Know, real periods where where it's you know extremely switched on. You can't switch off because there's a risk to your life. That's quite different to someone who's, you know, dealing with an unmanned number of emails, who's rushing between one thing and the next. They're not the same level of threat. But what they are is a continual reminder that you can't switch off. And and no one has ever lived in the world we live in today. You know, mm-hmm. I would say the biggest single factor in creating a, a culture of inability to switch off would be something like 24-hour news, maybe yeah. even before social media. Mm-hmm. My, my ability to deal with pressures, you know, is is down to my, you know, my, my emotional coping, my mental coping, but my physiological coping. Whoever said that I could deal with seeing children dead on the street in Ukraine, while I'm trying to run a business, when I'm trying to, you know, manage my home, yeah. whilst my elderly parents are not well, we're adding something into our lives that we, we were never designed to deal with.
1: So do you think that is then a very strong case for also, you know, we talk about not working at the weekends, for example, and being able to design a five-day work week, which arguably has its problems in itself, but that gives us this respite at the weekend. If then our current lifestyle means that we spend that weekend, then not working, but our, our mind is constantly consuming news, whether it's gossip, whether it's your favorite influencer, whether it's your friend from school getting married, all of these things that you kind of Constantly see then on social media bombarded at you in a kind of at a rate that we could never have possibly imagined before social media. Yes. Do you think then there's a case for being able to give yourself total respite from all of these different things?
0: It's a challenge. So, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we're seeing because the world is continual stimulus. You know, we have a, we have a hyper stimulus problem. You know, we we would look at people's brains. Um, and, and see the brain become hyper-vigilant. Mm. So it's always looking for its next fix. You know, it's always looking for the next thing to worry about. When we see people who've had a trauma, you know, why they've got heightened stress and anxiety response, they're looking for the next thing. Right. That previous experience is, is, means they're looking for stress. Um, a good example of that is if I have someone who's, who's uh, myself, I used to have a fear of flying. So I'd be on a plane and everyone is going through the same thing as me. but. My previous bad flight has meant I'm listening to the engine because I think it's going to crash. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually turning my physiology into a plane crash, not a plane flight. And that's why my heart rate goes up, my palms start sweating. I'm hyper vigilant because of something that happened in my past that changed the way I view the current. And the future. So I'm living in the future, effectively.
1: So then in the everyday, with this being kind of the reality of, first of all, the li- world we live in now with things like social media and 24-hour news and constant connectivity and the idea that we need to be working far more than we ever did in kind of industrial revolution times, yes. for example, <clears throat> what can we do then to be able to reduce that stress whilst living in this world? Because it's not like we can just be like, oh, okay, well, I'll just fight against those multi-billion dollar tech companies that are vying for my attention totally. and just ignore it. Yeah. The reality is that's not going to be the case most of the time.
0: Exactly right, and we have to live in the world we live in. You know, we can't fixate on on what happened in the past. You know, and again, we add into stimulus light exposure, we add into stimulus noise exposure. You know, we we as a sensory you know machine are constantly bombarded, and we've got to take the idea that that going into recovery mm-hmm. is not just the absence of stimulus. So if I turn everything off, that probably won't give my body a clear chemical message or, or message to go into physiological recovery. And out of this, we're seeing the rise of activities that seem to help my body transition to recovery. So why is meditation generated to unicorn businesses you know, in calm yeah. and headspace? Because you know, meditation is, a, is if you like, a, a pill to drive my body out of a state of stimulus into a state of calm. Now, that may be through its action on my, my brain's ability to focus on one thing, or more likely the regulation of my breathing, which is one of the most powerful ways to move me into calm. We know Wim Hof, I don't know if you know the Wim Hof method, but, you know, a, a sort of, um, he's, he's a gentleman who's, who's pioneered cold water breathing therapy and it's become extremely popular for people um, as a form of, of therapy, as a form of de-stressing, people who've suffered from burnout, etc. If you add cold water to human physiology, it slows our metabolism down it puts us into recovery because mm-hmm. body's trying to preserve its, its energy, preserve life. And if you get me slow breathing while in cold water, you have, again, a a very condensed pill for activating recovery. And I think we've got this idea that everything is stimulus. So now we need deliberate mechanisms of driving me into recovery, of which breath work is is powerfully almost number one, because as I breathe, I drive my physiology into recovery. And that's why, again, we see methodologies of breathing that, that slow the exhalation, but try and get us breathing not from the upper respiratory, but from our diaphragm, from our, from our belly. If I breathe slowly from my diaphragm, I pull on a nerve called the vagus nerve that fundamentally drives me into recovery. So even if I'm on that plane and my brain has decided, oh, this plane's going to crash and my physiology is getting ready for a, for a crash and the bereavement and all the horror of it, yeah. I can come out of that by slowing my breathing, which is why, again, it's a very powerful way of getting out of a panic attack, which is where that loop has, has got itself out of control. So we got we've got modern day solutions would be things like meditation things like breathing things like cold water therapy the biggest probably single reset would be my movement and and yeah. we have to again to factor in not all movement is equitable you know movement has been reduced into a calorie exercise yeah. you know so I move to burn calories I do my 10,000 steps to burn calories I train three times a week to keep my weight under control movement is the lifeblood of physiology if right? when I move I recalibrate my internal physiology. I move and that shakes digestion. you know, it shakes my digestive system. It helps me mm. literally wobble poo through my bowel. A lovely image. To, you know, I'm so sure, nice, Thank so you. nice. So lovely. So glad you have me. You know, <laughs> you know, I got, you hope know. no
1: one's eating. I hope no one's eating. Put
0: it down. Um, you know, but if, if you've eaten something and your blood glucose is going up, you know, the, the, the carbohydrate turning into sugar in your bloodstream, as you move, it comes back out again. So we, we have a different response to glucose. We have a different response to digestive health. We have the fact that my body is pumping blood down now to my legs. How's it getting for my legs back up? Mm-hmm. Partly under blood pressure, but partly under muscle pumps. So I need those muscles to squeeze my blood like toothpaste up a tube. So everything from my circulation to my glucose control to my digestion relies on movement. But equally, the more I move, the more I'm able to go into recovery because that's what my body loves. When I train, I don't obviously get fitter from training, I get fitter from the recovery from training. So when we see people do cardiovascular exercise, when they increase their cardiovascular capacity, we see a greater propensity to move into recovery. So one of the reasons why someone, you know, who's, let's imagine we've got three people lined up next to each other, all relatively good athletes, you know, running a 10k, the person who is the fastest will probably have the the lowest resting heart rate. Again, very generalized. That's not just because their heart is larger. It's because the nervous system that slows heart rate down is more dominant in them. And that's the same nervous system that, again, we're talking about with recovery. It's called parasympathetic. So, you know, my mechanism is to say, how can I, combat modern living which is which is the reality you know the path of least resistance for someone now is to get ill you know it, it is a it is a they coined the word obesogenic environment years ago which said you're likely to gain weight um, and you're likely within that to get the diabetes so obesity plus diabetes these are these are the likely things that our environment is driving us towards because everything's labor saving. If I go to any tech conference, it means I used to have to get up to change the remote. Now I can shout at something. I used to get up to order food. Now I can holler at a device. So everything is decreasing our movement quality and volume. Everything is allowing us to eat more hyper processed, highly palatable foods that are low in nutrients, etc. Everything is telling me to stay stimulated all day long. I know most teenagers go to bed with an iPad, Mm. which is totally counterintuitive to human physiology that requires Mm -hmm. darkness for sleep. So the, the environment is making us more likely to fall over. So we then need to find cheats, if you like, to sit in that. So if that is my lifestyle, can I you know, meditate? Can I move? Can I use cold water therapy? Can I manage my, my, my chemical inputs that directly affect my stress, of which the two big ones would be caffeine and alcohol? Interestingly, and again, people will be sort of saying, please, Ollie, me with
1: my
0: don't talk to me about caffeine.
1: bottle of vodka and my coffee down well, here. Well,
0: you know, I, was, I thought that was a strange <laughs> yeah. addition to the well. thing. But caffeine, you know, caffeine is 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 a bit of a catastrophe. It's sort of a chemical mm-hmm. stress. You know, if you have 10 espressos, yeah. you have that sort of crushing feeling of anxiety because caffeine acts pretty similarly to adrenaline, which would drive that sort of hyper stress state. Um, it tastes so good. It's so delicious. And trust me, I love it. But the biggest challenge you've got, again, if someone is saying I'm not managing my stress well and mm. they're dosing in on caffeine, they are putting petrol on the flames. The biggest lifestyle factor that, that seems to exacerbate all this is the misappropriation of alcohol as a de-stressing factor. Right. So if I watch any good quality ITV drama...
1: Or just me at the weekends. You at the weekend.
0: <laughs> right? But you at the weekend, that's different, right? So you, let's imagine you're on a Tuesday night. You come mm-hmm. home after a hell of a day. Right. Now, if I watch you know again some drama, the protagonist will get home open the fridge, get out you know, a, a sort of bottle of white wine, pour a glass, it looks amazing. It does. And you can see them sort of go, ah. Yeah. Now, if I'm in that hyper sort of vigilant, stimulated sense, you know, my sympathetic nervous system's driving me all day long, I will breathe a little more upper respiratory. I will hold more muscle tension and that- Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, But. Will mean I've got a sort of sense of tension here, which is mm. why I love a massage. Don't get them at home, but I'd love a massage. Um, I can't get a massage at home, so if I drink alcohol, it's a muscle relaxant. So it basically gives me that feeling. Right. But neurologically, it's not a relaxant. It, it will stimulate me, which is yeah. why if I drink too much, I go out till three o'clock in the morning and dance on a table. Yeah. It's not a. It's not a suppressant. It's a muscle relaxant. So it's dressed up as a stress reliever, but it actually exacerbates stress, kills deep sleep, and is the biggest probably wrong use of a stress aid in the world.
1: so what I should do when I get home, just so I can take notes on this, is I should get in the door, I should breathe really deeply. Love it. I should then get in a cold bath. Amazing. Turn my phone off. Amazing. And sleep.
0: You get in o'clock? the bath not straight away get out of the bath
1: yeah i think you know
0: one of the most important things is the body needs some kind of boundary when yeah. it knows it can move into recovery
1: so kind of a like evening hygiene type routine evening so
0: sleep hygiene has grown in, in concept yeah. because absolutely my brain needs to understand that it can let itself go into deep sleep where it's fundamentally not listening to the world mm-hmm. but if i have again okay, the blue light thing's slightly different but if i've asked my brain to solve problems if I've asked my brain to, to see something highly adrenalizing like in you know I watched Ozark on Netflix that's yeah. not good pre-bed you know watching so you've got these things that are asking me to solve problems and then I'm expecting my brain to go from a stimulated state to go into deep sleep where it's where it's really disconnected from the world it, it won't let me go there if anyone's had a child they'll know they, they're listening for that child in the night and they kill yeah. deep sleep as a result because you're desperately wanting to hear that they're breathing and they cry out for you you can't go into deep sleep if you're waiting, but you know, if you've ever taken an early morning flight, right?
1: This is, I was about to say that, I was about to say that last night, I, cause I knew it was a very early morning yeah. and I'd been out to dinner and gone to bed later than I would have otherwise. Yes. And so I went to sleep and I was like, God, it's going to be a hard wake up. And I just woke up every single hour because I just thought, yeah. That alarm's going to go off and totally. I need to not miss it. Totally. Not that I've ever even missed an alarm in my life. Just like like I do not think I've ever slept through <laughs> an alarm. And yet every single hour, like,
0: the podcast. Totally. Oh. And, and, and it's a real it's a real thing. So your brain is is going to let itself, it's going to protect you. right? So yeah. if it feels there's a threat, and it, it, again, it can't distinguish between you getting up early to make a flight to meet a podcast versus you being a threat of some kind of war-based attack. Right. Very different. It won't let you go into a state of sleep where you're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's protecting you. Okay. So, and and if we don't go into deep sleep, particularly in those early hours, which is where we get most of our deep sleep. So deep sleep, slow wave sleep. You know, within there, we drive our immune system regulation, which is amazing. Uh, We consolidate memory. You know, our creative brain. All sorts of fantastic things go on in deep sleep. If I have been unable to convince my body. That there's nothing it needs to worry about. If I've, mm-hmm. I've been you know and if I've used alcohol, those two things will stop me going into that deep sleep.
1: So how do we convince our bodies that there's nothing to worry about overnight?
0: We've got to trick it. You know, in many cases, you know, one of the key things with that is how can I focus on an individual sense? So mm-hmm. things, you know, massages have a great example. No yeah. one's going to have a regular massage every night. I think you know, there's, there's often that ability to create a physical transition between work and play. So mm-hmm. a sort of evening shower can work really well within the world of, of transitions. You know, if people are working from home, do they change clothes when they when they finish work? Do they have mm-hmm. a shower? You know, I have a different scent in the morning, a sort of you know, a very citrus based scent, and then a lavender based scent in the evening. I need to create. Something that tells my physiology Props. that I've changed work. Mm-hmm. You know, we know the old adage, I used to, you know, work from home. Now actually I live at work. It's, yeah. the, it's sort of the spin on that. So if we're working from home or if we're at a home where we, we need a transition, clothing, you know, a a you know, a a shower, hot bath can work really, really well with different scents. Exercise is still probably the most powerful modulator of of transition. So at the end of the day, My body's been building itself into that heightened state. Some kind of exertion is beautiful to reset my physiology. Yeah. Now the question there would be, do I go and slaughter a punch bag, you know, which would be some high intensity interval training, which is a highly adrenalizing activity? Or do I go for low intensity steady state, which was damned a few years ago because it wasn't deemed effective at massively changing fitness or burning as many calories. But when we repurpose the idea that exercise isn't always about calorie burning or progression, we can use low-intensity steady-state cardio. It could be a swim. that could be you know, a hard walk. It could be bike riding. And we use that as a way of saying, right, over the course of the day, I've built up this stimulus pot, and now I need to somehow decrease my body's alertness. And if I exert myself, that's a really great recalibrator. So I'm seeing a lot of people, again, who are hyper-stimulated. I've seen this for, you know, for 23 years. Highly stimulated in a sort of perpetual switched-on state. Who then try and sort of slaughter themselves in a high intensity gym environment in the evening? Finish that off with a glass of wine while watching Netflix and wonder why they're exhausted the following morning. Right. And and so we, you know, <clears throat> there are loads of things we could talk about in a practical sense within that. But your biggest ones would be, you know, some kind of physical transition between work and play. Play is extremely valuable, fun, humor. Am I watching something humorous, not something dark and, and, yeah. and distressing? Lower intensity exercise could be yoga, Pilates could be low intensity cardio, um, avoidance of alcohol, and then some kind of transition between blue light and red light. Is in how do I allow my body's natural mechanism of moving into recovery to, to be facilitated?
1: So essentially creating a kind of cycle of prompts for morning versus evening can go a long way in terms of reducing our stress and helping our sleep.
0: Enormous. And you, you know, you've know, you spoken to lots of entrepreneurs and business owners, routines matter. Mm. So a morning routine is extremely important. From a, from a stress and, and hormonal management point of view, we love first morning light exposure. So in that first mm-hmm. hour to get outside and actually allow our eyes to, to sort of have natural light on them that helps regulate our circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. So what these two hormones sort of fighting for control, cortisol, which we pump out, In the middle of the night about four o'clock and that drives our energy state in the morning but should decrease to really low levels as we get towards bedtime and as as light goes down and our temperature cools our body goes do you know what i'll start getting ready for sleep starts to make melatonin which helps enable us into deep sleep and melatonin which some people take to help them with flights but you your, your body should naturally produce it is a really really powerful anti-ageing. I know.
1: Uh, oh, I was going to say powerful sleep. I I do not have a good tolerance for melatonin. I took it on a flight the other day and I thought I was going to die. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's really, really variable. Some people take it and, and barely mm. feel it at all. And, you know, it, it's not necessarily a sleep aid for lots of people, but it tries to recalibrate the circadian rhythm. And in, in this idea that I produce cortisol, let's say 4am and I start to produce melatonin mm. as the sun goes down, let's say, you know, 8, 9pm, that's one of the major reasons people talk about why you have a sleep routine. Why I don't get up one day at 6 a.m., the yeah. next day at 9, why I don't go to bed at 9, the next day at 1, because those hormones won't shift and change right. night by night.
1: So I have this terrible hangover routine
0: Excellent.
1: that I want to tell you about because I think you're going to yell at me.
0: <laughs> I so don't yell at anyone, Grace.
1: I've heard that the reason you wake up early on a hangover is because of the blood sugar like related with alcohol. Yeah. So it'll wake you up, but also one of the main reasons for a hangover is also like lack of sleep. Yeah. So I, in my little lab, that is my bedroom, have tried to combat this by when I wake up hungover, say on a Sunday morning, yeah. I've been to sleep at around three. Excellent. And I've woken up at probably around seven because I'd say I wake up on a weekday, usually around like six, seven. Yeah. And so my body naturally wakes up. Usually on a Saturday, if I haven't gone out, I can have a lion. On a Sunday, I can't. And I have taken the time to research and do the scientific backing to see that this is why this is a problem. And so my solution at this point in time, because I will honestly just lie awake for hours thinking I am so hungover, yeah. <laughs> I could violently vomit it right now. And so what I do... Is I take half a melatonin and I go back to sleep.
0: Oh wow! Right now <laughs>
1: until like midday <laughs> or like or like one or two, as like a normal person in their twenties who's hungover yes, can do. Yes. But I'm so hardwired for this like six a.m. wake up and the blood sugar and all of that yeah. that I get about three hours sleep. I spend the whole day in a semi state of like sleep and all of this. Yeah. I'm not going to recommend it to people, but what I will say <laughs> is it is foolproof for giving you a good day by the time you do wake up.
0: That's very interesting.
1: And I am a pioneer of That's this theory. amazing.
0: Now, I cannot rejoice really? this message. <laughs> this is the absolute... The, the
1: pits. I think yeah.
0: You know, you know, if I had the solution to a hangover, you mm. know, I'd, I'd be I'd be living in a wonderful. Well, world. I do. You know. Well, you, <laughs> you should add this to the portfolio. I think the challenge. You know, you're right. It, it's predominantly a sleep issue. Yeah. You know, it it can be a hydration issue because you've consumed so much of a diuretic. Yeah. It can be a blood glucose issue because you you know you've you've dropped your blood sugar levels to enormous levels. I also
1: do have a McDonald's before bed.
0: Well, without fail. I, I when I'm drunk. Yeah, you know, and again. Blood I can't sugar. argue theoretically the blood sugar you know and mm. people used to talk about cysteine as being a sort of particular element to help detoxify and that's why eggs were good in the, in the morning I think it's cysteine you know it, it's one where you fundamentally are doing something that's horrible to your physiology yeah right? you're over you're yeah. overwhelming it with a toxin it has to it has to detoxify mm-hmm. there'll be there'll be there's two parts to this conversation the, the first part is how old is the individual yet because yep. fundamentally she's 25. Apparently. That, yeah, that, that, that 25-year-old physiology is rock star, right? So we have to bear in mind, when people talk about, you know, don't do not not enjoy your youth. They're, mm. they're largely talking about the resilience of young physiology. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can pretty much hammer it. Of course, there are ripples that will show up later in life. Yeah. But the physiology of a 25-year-old is quite different. So let's imagine I'm turning 45, you know, soon. The, the, my physiology is quite different 20 years on <clears throat> because I've used up loads of my stem cells. My body has given me a chance to reproduce whether I take it or not. And my resources required to get me through adolescence and young adulthood have, 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 have been partially exhausted. And now I'm on a, a sort of gradual degeneration until the end of my life. It's That's positive. so nice. Really, I'm so really much nice. fun at parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 40s, 50s, Yeah, you're on a positive degeneration.
1: Regener- <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so that you're, you face very different challenges that when you're dealing with people in, in older stages, mm-hmm. they have less resilience in their physiology mm-hmm. and they will suffer much more from things that that tax them.
1: So what you're saying is enjoy it while it lasts, keep taking your melatonin <laughs> and keep going out too much. I
0: cannot you know, authorize any of the things that okay. you, you know. mm-hmm. do. And, and I think you know, fundamentally the melatonin is an interesting one because in many ways you're disrupting then your circadian rhythms. So that's yeah. quite an interesting byproduct. Yeah. And, it, and for most people taking melatonin, they won't find it as a sleep aid. Again, it's a it's a time zone regulation tool. So if I fly east and I want to bring my body clock forwards, then I want my melatonin. I
1: am doing the same. I'm jet lagged that day. You are because technically on Sundays I just go to America.
0: Okay, spot up for in a day. terms of
1: my yeah, in terms yeah. of my time zone, because I'm going to sleep at three. Yes, and I'm waking up later, so it's just a quick travel.
0: I hear you. I mm. want I want the same conversation in twenty years time yeah. to see whether it whether whether, well, you are are, dead. whether your <laughs> solutions are are placebo mm-hmm. know, or whether you, you know, clearly the hydration, the blood sugar control, you know, and resting, you know, yeah. the day after you've, you've destroyed yourself, the body can go without sleep, right, for periods of time. We know, yeah. not, not concurrently, but not everything has to be balanced and checked and balanced on mm. a physiological basis daily. So I'm designed to go into, not myself, childbirth, you know, periods yeah. of, of, you know, of enormous <laughs> so reduced sleep. Well, you know, I really, I'll tell my wife, but yeah, you know, we're designed for periods where we don't sleep well, Mm -hmm. war, famine, childbearing, you know, Mm -hmm. periods where where we can't get that resource perfect all the time. There's a little bit of a sort of modern cry to say, oh, I I didn't sleep well last night. I'm going to fall over. We can do it. You know, the human body is unbelievable resilience. So we can do lots of things on an individual basis. We can do things on on a relatively chronic basis. It's when we start to see that sort of progressive degeneration of of feeling well, of systems of biology that we say, actually, that needs correction. but the the headline news there is, if you sell that product, you probably will get quite a few people buying it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not recommending anything, just for the legal side <laughs> yeah. of things. There's no recommendations here.
0: You know, one of the the businesses I'm involved in, it's called Pillar, and and we have said really that our products and services will put an equitable effort into recovery yeah. as much as movement and nutrition. If we think of well being, not as I mean, the definition of well being is so floaty. The definition of well being is a state of being. Um, happy comfortable or healthy that she's not even happy state of being something comfortable and healthy so it's so floaty yeah. that that's the reason why skincare is the biggest contributor to it right if i want to feel well then i need the sum of negative impact on my physiology to be outweighed by the sum of positive impact on my physiology right you today will do lots of things that your body doesn't like. You might eat food that's processed and changes the, the way your body reacts to that food hormonally or digestively. You might not move as much as we might like. You might apply creams to your skin that have toxins in. These are negative inflections. You might also um, have some cold water, you know, you might breathe nicely, you might nourish with some particularly good foods, mm-hmm. things that support your physiology. And really we all look at well-being as as those two things are at war. And depending on where those two things net out plus minus my genetics, will determine whether I feel and function well. So this is where we struggle with wellbeing, right? You can't say a single thing is good or bad for you. Mm -hmm. So is alcohol bad for you? Well, in the context of if that day, the negative impacts on my physiology outweighed the positive, then that day my physiology took a step backwards. If that's one day out of 365, it's, it's irrelevant.
1: I think that's quite a comforting look at well-being as well. When you think of the fact that actually we're we're pitched a lot of the time on social media, this idea of kind of constant improvement, which I I love the idea. I love the idea of kind of being able to Im- improve in general over time. But the idea seems quite overwhelming and like big. Whereas if you look at it in a way where it's actually it's just sm- those small choices every day that just nets nets out to be better than it is bad is making that change towards better even physiology, not just the rest of it, you know, the rest of kind of what we think of as improvement. I think that's quite comforting. I think that makes me think, you know what, as long as I'm exercising every so often and doing good breathing and actually have a shower when my hot water's gone for the second fucking time that week (laughs) um, and all of of those things, it's just about doing little bits of those things and actually that to me is less overwhelming than trying to make sure I've had seven kombuchas, exactly
0: right.
1: inhaled some spirulina, yeah. um, and put some cream on my face. Yeah,
0: and, we, and we're being sold single point solutions for a multifactorial system. You know, and again, for my physiology to change. Any message into it needs to be chronic. You know, I don't, I don't get fit overnight. I don't get nourished overnight. I do it over, you know, weeks. You know, generally six weeks minimum, but three months. You know, why would I want to see someone back in three months if I've done some testing? Because it's got to be that period of time before anything changes. But I think you know that also means that we can't say that one individual thing is particularly good for us or bad for us. You know, we, lots of people have this n equals one approach, and the fact that let's imagine everything worked amazingly in you. Um, but you didn't have enough of a particular bacteria strain in your digestive system. And that bacteria strain was in a kombucha that you drank. You might drink that kombucha and that might increase your energy levels, or you might not, that might support your immune system. So your body that used to get a cold didn't get a cold. So you go online, you say, Oh my goodness, kombucha is the solution to all things. Mm-hmm. Because it was your limiting factor. And what you look at when you go online is people sort of, you know, really evangelically proclaiming yeah. that single point solutions have a have a collective benefit on physiology, they may have done for that individual. But, but if yeah. my gut bacteria is absolutely amazing in yeah. terms of its diversity, and of course gut bacteria predominantly a good thing, but it's amazing its diversity and its abundance, that kombucha just has no impact yeah. on me. But the fact that I have got the weakest glutes in Europe, you know, means that I pull a muscle every time I go and do some exercise, that's my limiting factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I become an advocate for... Pilates. Mm. So we've just got to be careful that we don't see people transposing their limiting factor N equals one experience as a collective solution to well-being. And I like this t- idea to take a step back. And I, I don't see fitness, nutrition, you know, recovery, sleep. I see the sum of positive inflections on physiology, the sum of negative inflections right. on physiology. And I, if the individual has a motivation to change then I want to move the, the balance of those scales.
1: So when then consuming a lot of this, for example, social media that's saying, oh, this product's great, this product's great, this product's great, in the most well-meaning way, because, you know, I'll I'll use something and I'll be like, this is the best thing ever. And it might yeah. be a hair oil. Yes. And I might say, like, this has genuinely changed my hair. And it's, yeah. it's well-meaning, all of these things. It converts very well. We know people will buy it. Yeah. How then does that person that's consuming that information become, first of all, more well because it might it might have the same effect it on might. them and it, there's a higher chance that it will if someone has said great versus if no one has said great totally how do we become more aware of all of these things and aware of what our limiting factors are in order to consume media like that better yeah when we don't have access to something like a health screening
0: it's a real really great question great challenge i think if these products are having a positive impact on physiology, they'll do no harm. right mm-hmm. So we've got to work on the idea that if it's a particular supplement, you know assuming it doesn't have a sort of toxicity threshold, it will do no harm, a hair, oil do no harm. The challenge for an individual to sort of pick this out, I think is difficult. I think for me, you know one, one of the areas I'm in is trying to increase the capacity of the fitness industry to hold better well-being conversations. Right, that, yeah. that is my new purpose to say, look, how is it that an individual has never had someone help them curate their lifestyle? So if I go and meet anyone on the street and say, right, which supplements are you taking? What's your exercise routine? What's your sleep pattern? What's your relationship with toxins? Do you go BPA-free? Are you mm. you're toxin-free? You know, what what, what what, does that look like? What's your psychological approach to mindset? You know, Do you journal? Do you do gratitude? And people have sort of created this strange sort of smorgasbord of actions and behaviors based on anecdotal social media here. But no one's ever said... Is it effective? And, and ask, does that work? And I think for me, first things first, there's a need for a, a slightly better practitioner to support most people with lifestyle choices. Mm. I think we have to bear in mind what most people are looking for are passive one percenters, not meaningful 20, 30 percenters, i.e., mm. you know, we, we would see, I was in Westfield the other day, nothing against, but IV vitamin infusions. Right? If you've got if you're having an IV vitamin infusion for increasing energy levels before you've done your daily steps before you've eaten a whole food diet and before you've tried to sleep seven to nine hours of quality sleep, that's insane. Yeah. Right? Because you're asking, you're, you're believing the reason you haven't got energy is that you have an inadequate provision of B vitamins and magnesium. And that's the reason you, you need 15 coffees to get out of bed versus something that will fundamentally change every single cell in your body, which is moving better, nourishing better, recovering better. So I think people want the idea that, that wellbeing can be a passive solution and products are exploiting that a little bit. If that 1% for you was actually more meaningful, because again, let's imagine I am someone with super low B vitamins and magnesium. I go for my IV vitamin infusion, I I may feel better. I'll have a crazy colored wee, but that's that's a different story altogether. So we've got the idea that it's not a negative thing per se, right. but it's over-exaggerating its likely impact on physiology.
1: And it can be just a waste of money.
0: It, 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 it Possibly. And again, not, uh, we've it No, no, I don't mean specifically
1: for, for, for IV. I mean, in general, in general, when taking advice, there is obviously the risk that anything will be a waste of money, because if it's not detrimental, then it's still negligible in its effect to your
0: totally, health. Totally. And so we look, again, we talk, We started this, but where's that ethical element of, you know, dealing with sort of high net worth individuals with a superior healthcare, that model proves that the value of lifestyle impacts on every part of physiology mm. and we need to go back to that and, and for me the idea that to get a good quality lifestyle i'd need to go and see a personal trainer i need to go and see a nutritionist i need to go and see a sleep coach i need to go and see a psychotherapist i need to go and see you know, sort of a toxicity counselor is, is is not doesn't sit comfortably with me you know the, most people are making decisions based on on biased information on you know clever intelligent marketing and i want people to go back to the roots of how the body works and try and build in across those domains of movement nutrition recovery environment and mindset a better baseline series of activities and and that isn't sexy or cool right mm. but it but it's it's pragmatic and it's effective yeah. and and in many cases we we are living a life that is directly in opposition to our physiology right. and we need to go back a step and say so we're designed to move We're designed to eat foods rich in nutrients and rich in fibre. And we're designed to chew them and eat them slowly. We're designed to sleep in darkness and sleep disconnected from the world. We would never evolve to deal with half the things that are in the air and our water and our foods. And we certainly have it very difficult to think clearly when everyone's telling us we need to overthink on everything. Mm -hmm. And if I take those things, that makes it tough to be well. There are pretty simple solutions to most of those areas.
1: So with that in mind, to end... If every guest could change or add or be aware of three things to make their lives less stressful yeah. and to go from good to great,
0: mm-hmm. what would they be? Great question. Three things. Um, I'm going to do simple things. Mm-hmm. Management of caffeine, you know, certainly its impact on sleep is, is pretty catastrophic unless you're very fortunate genetically. Um, so caffeine pre lunchtime. time. Caffeine after lunch, you know, whether that's green tea, caffeine, tea, caffeine, or coffee, caffeine is a big problem. Mm-hmm. But I put caffeine and alcohol use are chemical-
1: Only which, in the morning. No.
0: <laughs> so <some laughs> right. people said, you know, should I then drink alcohol earlier? Yeah. And people used to say to me, Ollie, on its bullet point, oh, I, you know, can we get my liver function checked? Cause I'm yeah. wondering if I'm drinking too much. It's like, start measuring your sleep to see if you drink too much. Yeah. So caffeine and alcohol managed against your personal recovery levels. If you okay. sleep beautifully and you wake up refreshed, then part of that isn't relevant. But if those things aren't true, that's the first place to start. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for me, when I first got into measuring physiology, I thought meditation was a bit left field and a bit floaty. And then when I've seen people adopt appropriate meditation and how that changes both their breathing, but also the ability to go from thinking about a million things to thinking about one thing, that has a huge collective change Mm -hmm. on physiology. And So the application of some kind of meditation that could be a mindfulness driven by an app, that could be Vedic meditation where it's 20 minutes twice a day using a mantra, but something that brings you to a point of stillness and regulates breathing has great value. That could be through yoga, could be through Pilates. So daily meditation has huge significant value. And then movement, not necessarily exercise. You know, you right. can't buy back the impact of daily progressive movement in a 45 minute high intensity boxing session. Human physiology is not designed to move in a feast and fashion, a mm-hmm. sort of feast and famine domain. So regular movement controls blood glucose, control circulation will, will have a huge impact. We see people you know, proclaiming about forest bathing, walking in nature. Yeah. We see people do barefoot walking, all these things. Movement, whatever format is available yeah. to that individual throughout the day has a huge effect on bringing us out of stimulus into recovery. Um, so it's three simple things.
1: Three simple things that I, I think I do none of. <laughs> like the movement one, I definitely sit still all day, but I do work out in the morning. Right. So. I give myself. I, I do the feasting. I yep. do the feasting in the morning yes. um, with my workout, and then I honestly do not move throughout the day, the yep. large majority of the time, especially if I'm working from home. But yep. on office days, still my steps, my Apple Watch is yelling at me. Yep. Caffeine. To be fair, I do shout at everyone that caffeine has a half life of twelve hours. Is it? It
0: can be eight to twelve. Like, okay. You break it down. Well,
1: yep. I'm, I, I extrapolate up to yeah. <laughs> upper bound, um, and I try if I have coffee after 11 a.m it will be decaf yeah but i understand that decaf still has caffeine in it
0: has theobromine which is another sort of oh okay um
1: so but but still keep that earlier
0: better is better yeah i
1: definitely wouldn't have caffeine after say like 1 2 p.m unless i'm going
0: out we're different Different. that's fine in america that's fine And it's it's Um, also pre-workout it works extremely well for that
1: yeah and then um what was the last one meditation i think i quite enjoy being a very frantic person at all times. Yeah. And I, I d- uh, understand the limits of it, but I yeah, also um, don't do anything about it.
0: I think it's a brilliant point, but not everyone needs everything. I you know, mm. think, and within wellbeing, we're sort of guilty. I of course, think
1: none of those, and you've said not everyone yeah, needs everything. But let's start
0: back and say, that, do you wake up feeling refreshed? Are you performing at a high level? Mm. Your body composition's where you want it to be? Are you, you know, mentally where you want to be? And we take all those things. We start with a subjective story. We haven't got a reason to change. So, what we've got to be careful is the absence or presence of a behavior does not define well being. Mm-hmm. We have to start with does the individual have an incentive to change? Now, that might be for someone mitigating symptoms of disease, that might be for someone improving energy, improving cognition. But, we, but but well-being is, you know, if I go into a talk and say, who here is healthy? No one will put their hand up because yeah. everyone goes, oh, I, I train a lot, but I don't yeah, meditate. And right, right, right.
1: You That's don't so need them
0: if you don't need them. So what, what we need well-being to be is a toolkit that you go, right, actually, my brain has been a bit foggy the last few weeks. Which area of, of, of lifestyle is most negatively affecting my physiology and which area can I boost that positively affects it? And how does that net out? Mm-hmm. We don't need you know, to, to take a behaviour and say the absence of it means I'm dysfunctional. We need to bring and add behaviours only when, when they're valid to us.
1: That's so interesting. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredibly interesting and also a personal health assessment, <laughs> um, which I have failed. But thank you so much, honestly. I feel like so many people will take a lot away from this and lots of very actionable things that are very accessible. So um, really appreciate that and thank you for
0: coming on. Absolute pleasure, Grace. Thanks for having me.